Good morning. Our reading this morning comes from Matthew 11, verses 16 through 24. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day, but I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Uh, this morning we have a, a great privilege. Uh, you don't have to listen to Bob, John, or I. Uh, the great privilege is that we have Dr. Paul Copan uh, with us this morning. He is up from Palm Beach Atlantic University. And he has spent the last three days with us leading the seminar, Is God a Moral Monster? The answer is no, just in case you were wondering. Okay. Uh, Dr. Paul Copan has done his studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, so we know he's brilliant. That's where I went to. Uh, and a PhD at Marquette University in philosophy. He is currently the prof- professor of philosophy and ethics at Palm Beach Atlantic. And he has written numerous books, including When God Goes to Starbucks, Just a Handy Guide to Apologetics, Is God a Moral Monster, as well as some more dense academic things that sell for hundreds of dollars, right? So go buy those. No. Uh, it is a privilege. Uh, it's been a delight to get to know him this weekend. He's done very, a very good job of ministering to us and helping us wrestle with very difficult questions. And I know we will be blessed by him this morning as well. Dr. Copan. Well, it's great to be with you all. Good to be back in the Midwest. I was born in the Midwest, born in Cleveland, Ohio. Go Browns, go Indians. All right. Uh, And have lived in the north a good bit of my life. I have lived in Connecticut uh, for a number of years. And uh, when my wife and I were first married, we lived in Connecticut. Then we lived in upstate New York for six and a half years. I was on staff of the church there and then went to uh, Wisconsin and or I got my Ph.D. and I've done my share of snow shoveling. Uh, I, you know, in dealing with brisk winds. In fact, I went to school at Trinity Seminary in Chicago. So I remember um, wind chill factors at uh, 35 or 40 below. So uh, so I'm with you. I could appreciate what you've had to go through this winter. 
I'm also very grateful for the warm welcome that I've received here and just want to say thank you to you all for bringing me here and uh, it's been good to get to know some of you folks and uh, I have been so thoroughly uh, warmly welcomed so thank you very much. Well I'm continuing on this theme of dealing with issues related to the Old Testament scriptures and a common objection that I hear when I speak on university campuses or just Uh, Students of mine uh, at uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University, they will sometimes raise this question, what this the God of the Old Testament seems so different than the God of the new. That there is you see harshness and judgment and uh, death and strong, stiff penalties for doing this or that. Then you get to Jesus in the New Testament talks about loving your enemies Praying for those who persecute you. Talks about this heavenly father who, uh, you know, if he you know, looks after the lily, clothes the lilies of the field, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And so you see this contrast and people will often point that out. In fact, there was a heretic in the second century, uh, Marcion, who, who rejected the Old Testament because that was just too harsh a deity, the, the God of the Jews, the God of judgment and justice and so forth. He picked his own books from the New Testament and the ones that portrayed Jesus as as loving and kind and and so forth. And God is the Heavenly Father. Well, actually, there are some people today, some scholars who uh, seem to reflect that kind of a spirit. They they don't really seem to think much of the way that the Old Testament is portraying God. And so they will sometimes diminish God the authority of the Old Testament or the portrayal of God in the Old Testament. And what I want to do is address that alleged discrepancy. Is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New? And what I want to do is break it up into two sections. First, what I want to do is talk about how the God of Jesus is the God of Moses that Jesus identifies himself with the Old Testament scriptures, identifies himself with that God of the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, sees himself as that God's agent in the world as his son. And then secondly, what I want to do is look at how Jesus actually brings to life the Old Testament in his own life, how he actually fulfills and brings to fruition some of the themes that we see in the Old Testament. And so we're going to it's going to be kind of a whirlwind tour here of the scriptures. So hang on to your hats and stay with me uh, and let's move with unperturbed pace, deliberate speed and majestic instancy. Well, let's talk, first of all, about how the God of Jesus is the God of Moses. First of all, as I noted, Jesus sees the Old Testament scriptures as authoritative, that this is part of the story of the people of God. Yes, it continues through Jesus and his ministry, but we see the beginnings of the story of God's engagement, first with the first humans and then with the people of God that he brings together at Mount Sinai and makes a covenant with them. 
Jesus proclaims that even the smallest letter or stroke of the Old Testament will not pass away. Jesus talks about how the Scriptures cannot be broken. Jesus is not one who is trashing the Old Testament. He is one who sees the Old Testament Scriptures as authoritative. Now, certainly there's a difference between the Old Covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. A lot of the things that were for the people of Israel in the Old Testament don't apply to us today. Kosher laws, circumcision, uh, special feast days and so forth. But it is still part of our story. And we still see in those scriptures God's working with His ancient people, Israel. Furthermore, not only does Jesus see the Old Testament scriptures as authoritative and the revelation of God's working with His ancient people, Jesus Himself carries on in His own ministry Many of those harsh themes that we see going on in the Old Testament. Well, what do I mean by that? Jesus sees himself as carrying on in that same prophetic tradition as the Old Testament prophets who spoke of judgment, who threatened judgment, who got angry. We just read a portion from Matthew 11. Here Jesus is coming into this world. He's, he is uh, one who is seeking to bring redemption to the people of Israel. But yet, Jesus speaks about how they disregard Him. You know, playing the, you know, we, we, we played for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you and you didn't mourn. Kind of like kids' games playing, you know. You know and, and Jesus is saying, you know, John the Baptist, he's, he is... Not eating and drinking. He is one who is very, he's an ascetic. He is one who is denying himself. He's living out in the wilderness. He's, he's living on, on, on the bare minimum. And people are criticizing John. When Jesus comes, he's eating and drinking. He's, he's uh, going to parties and hanging out with the dregs of society. And people are saying, well, look, he's, he's a glutton. He's a drunkard. I mean, Old Testament accusation of somebody this, who's this rebellious son. So they're, they're, they're slamming Jesus for doing the opposite. Here he is hanging out with sinners. He's eating and drinking. And yet, Jesus is still being rejected. So you can't win either way. Whether you do the John the Baptist route or the Jesus route, there's still, these religious leaders are still rejecting Jesus. And then Jesus pronounces judgment on some of those cities in which he has ministered, in which he has performed miracles, calling people to repentance, and they refuse to repent. They refuse to align themselves with the God of the Old Testament Scriptures and the God whom Jesus is proclaiming. And so he says, it's going to be worse for you than it was for Sodom. Worse for you than it was for Tyre and Sidon which experienced God's judgment. Jesus is one who is very serious about judgment. It's not as though, oh, judgment, that was just in the Old Testament. No, we see it continuing on. In fact, Jesus, as He is speaking uh, about the temple, and the disciples are talking to Him in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 about, wow, what a great structure this is that Herod built. Jesus said, not one stone is going to be left upon another. It's going to be destroyed. Judgment is coming. The Romans would come in A.D. 70 and destroy Jerusalem. 
Jesus is one who refers back to judgment in the days of Noah in that same chapter of Matthew 24. Jesus has very harsh words for those who are stumbling blocks to those who are little ones in the faith. He said if someone causes one of these little ones to sin, Matthew 18, it'd be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and for him to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus is very protective of his flock. You don't mess with Jesus. You lead some of these into sin, Jesus is on it. He is very serious about those consequences. Jesus threatens those who are those wretched tenants, those who are supposed to be taking care of God's vineyard, the people of Israel. He says those wretches are going to come to a miserable end. And of course, he's referring to judgment in A.D. 70 when the Romans come in and take and destroy Jerusalem. So in Matthew 21, we see very strong words that Jesus uses. Even in the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus is one who is still speaking. And Jesus is, you know, he has said he's going to come against these false, those who are false teachers, the Nicolaitans. He's going to make war against them with the sword of his mouth. He is going to bring judgment on them. Jesus says about this false prophet, this false prophetess Jezebel. Uh, in Revelation 2, that he's going to cast her on a bed of sickness, bring pestilence upon her followers. Jesus is one who clearly believes in the appropriateness of these kinds of punishments. We could say that Jesus has the same general outlook as those prophets in the Old Testament did who pronounced judgment. But that's not all. Not only does Jesus speak in this manner, but we see other voices in the New Testament with a similar message of continuity with the Old Testament Scriptures and with the God portrayed therein. We see, for example, Paul talking about the punishments that Israel experienced in the wilderness where God destroyed people, where serpents bit them because of their complaining, because they're grumbling against God. Jesus is one who, sorry, Paul is one who refers to this judgment of sickness and even death because of the abuse of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, because some of you are just coming, you're even getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. You know, there's a meal before and then the Lord's Supper afterwards. Paul said, it's because, you know, because of your, of your abuse of this, some of you are getting sick and even some of you have died. Some, of, some in your midst have died, have fallen asleep. We read of Stephen, who matter-of-factly in, uh, in Acts chapter 7 talks about the nations that were dispossessed by Israel. Paul also refers to these in Acts 13 of how Israel overthrew the seven nations of Canaan. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 refers to those who were mighty in war, who conquered kingdoms, those who put foreign armies to flight. He commends Noah for his faith, even though the rest of the world was destroyed in judgment. We see Jesus himself portrayed as, you know, in, Re in the book of Revelation, as, as being a wrathful lamb. A lot of us think is, uh, you know, th this lamb is, is, is sweet and, and uh, non-aggressive. Well, this lamb, probably referring back to the Maccabees in the intertestamental period who rose up to overthrow Antiochus Epiphanes, they were called horned lambs. 
who, when the Jerusalem temple was being desecrated, they fought to get it back out of the hands of the tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes. And here Jesus is this wrathful lamb who comes and makes war against those who oppose him. It says, in righteousness he judges and wages war, Revelation 19. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and he, that he may strike down the nations, and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That's the New Testament, folks. That's Jesus himself. Again, this is taken from Isaiah 63, where that language is used of Yahweh. And here Jesus is portrayed as the final judge, the one who brings vengeance to those who oppose him. We can go on to talk about how Peter, uh, you know, through the Spirit, strikes down Ananias and Sapphira for lying to God in Acts chapter 5. Or Paul, who strikes Elymas blind in Acts 13 and even calls him a son of the devil. The eleven. Uh, after they, after Judas has hanged himself and they're looking for a replacement apostle in Acts chapter 1, they appeal to these imprecatory psalms. Psalms that call for God to bring justice upon those who have done wrong, who are oppressing and so forth. There is a very strong theme. Again, it's not a personal thing, but it's actually asking God to, calling on God to do what is just, to render to every person according to his deeds. And so they use the language of the Psalms of let his homestead be made desolate. Let no one dwell in it. Let another take his office. These are the followers of the one who said, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Remember that when Jesus is saying those things, he himself does not commit. He does not see that as absolute and inviolable. There are times when the opportunity for repentance runs out. And people have gone too far and judgment needs to be taken very seriously. Jesus is someone who speaks not only of God's mercy, but also of God's justice. We read in Romans 11:22, behold the kindness and the severity of God. You don't mess with Jesus. Jesus is one who takes very seriously the call to discipleship. He calls us to take up our cross to follow him. Jesus said, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of being my disciple. Jesus is very serious, very sober about the about counting the cost before we follow him. It is not for the faint hearted. God's grace is sufficient and he welcomes all who come to him. But Jesus is also one who says, Discipleship is not something to be taken lightly. I think it's a challenge for all of us. Do we take up our cross each day to follow Jesus Christ? What sacrifices do we make for God's kingdom? Are we just surrounding ourselves with distractions like Facebook and cell phones and Netflix and all that? It's so easy to get pulled off track so that we're just living in a world of distraction. And we lose sight of the fact that God's kingdom is advancing and that Christ calls us to be part of that advancing kingdom, that which will not pass away. Let me move on to say something a little bit uh, about the second theme, about Jesus seeing his own life and ministry as being a continuation of Israel's story, indeed, the very fulfillment of that. 
we see in the New Testament scriptures, and, and listen to me carefully, two key images that will put the New Testament's message together for you. And it is this, that Jesus is, first of all, the second Adam who comes to undo the damage done to humanity by the first Adam. We read in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 how in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. We read that through Adam's act of transgression, all are condemned, but through the act of Jesus Christ, those who are in Him are made righteous. And this is, so Jesus is one who is, as the second Adam, He is the one who is creating a new humanity. He is bringing about a new creation through His ministry, His death, His resurrection. That, that resurrection signals that a new creation has come. Just as Jesus' body was raised from the dead, so our bodies too will be raised. My friends, we do not just die and go to heaven. That's not the final state. If it is, there's no point of Jesus being raised from the dead. Where's the victory over death in that? The very point of Jesus' resurrection is that a new creation has come. And when the new heavens and the new earth are brought to fruition, we who are part of that new creation, if anyone's in Christ, there is a new creation, we will receive resurrection bodies. We will experience a transformed physicality. The stuff of the New Testament affirms the goodness of the physical world. Yes, that is uh, fading in its present state, but will be made permanent in which God will meet with human beings just like he did in the garden. Where, we will, where, where the new heavens and the new, the new earth will be the new temple where God meets with human beings. He will be present with his people. And it says that God will dwell in the midst of them. And He will be their God. And they will be His people. When God created human beings, He created them in His image. Well, what does that mean? Well, it involves two important features. When we're told in Genesis chapter 1 that God makes human beings in His image, what immediately follows is the command to rule over the creation over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. We are called as human beings to share in ruling the creation with God. There is a kingly role that we share with God. But that's not all. Human beings are called to guard and keep the garden. It's very interesting that those words, those verbs, when they are uh, used in elsewhere in Scripture, they're rarely used together. But when they are used together, it is for the Levites and the priests who are to guard and keep the tabernacle. It is a picture of worship. So they are to guard and keep, or they are to you know to serve and to guard. Uh, perhaps would be a better way of putting it. So that this is their role to to be those who are like ministers before God, like the priests and the Levites. And indeed, when God is creating, the, you know, creating in Genesis 1, it is a picture of a temple where God will be meeting with human beings. And the language that is used of the creation is later on used for the creation of the tabernacle, 
So we see that there is the theme of humans made in the image of God in and in sharing a kingly role of ruling creation with God and also being worshipers of God. We are called to be priest kings. Adam failed in this. Israel failed in this. Israel, God commissioned them to be a, in Exodus 19, to be a kingdom of priests. They, the whole nation, the people of God, were to be a kingdom of priests, just like Adam was, but failed. This nation is called to be a kingdom of priests. We see kingship, we see, we see priesthood. But again, even Israel fails in its vocation. They do not become the new humanity that God is calling out. But because of the promise that God made to Abraham through you and your offspring, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We see that there is this faithful Israelite who comes into Israel. What he does, he, you know, in fact, he's called in the New Testament, not simply you know, humans are in the image of God. Jesus himself is declared to be the image of God. That is, he is the one who shows us what true humanity is like. He is the one toward which we should strive to be. We are the ones who are called to put on Jesus Christ. To put off the things that pertain to the old man. Who is the old man? Adam. When we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. Christ is the new man. And we are called to be part of a new community. We see in the New Testament that Jesus is not only the second Adam, but he is also the true Israel. And those who belong to him are part of that new true Israel of Jews and Gentiles now. So we see Jesus. Remember, it says that out of Egypt, I've called my son, quoting Hosea 11, which originally referred to ancient Israel coming out of Egypt through the Exodus. Well, Jesus is the leader of a new Exodus. And if you understand that Jesus is the new Israel bringing out a new community in this new exodus portrayed in going through, just as Jesus went through the waters of baptism in the Jordan River, kind of a, a reenactment of that, that Red Sea crossing. We, too, in our baptism are participating in that new exodus of par part of the people of God. So Jesus comes out of Egypt. He reenacts the Red Sea crossing as he is baptized in the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, comes upon him. There's a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Unlike Old Testament Israel, a faithless son, a son who is disobedient. Jesus is a true and faithful Israelite. Through whom the promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. That light and blessing would come to the nations. So Jesus comes. He reenacts the exodus. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Just as the ancient Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus calls 12 disciples. Just like there are 12 tribes in the Old Testament. Jesus calls a new community to himself. This community, my friends, if you don't understand it, if you don't get it, it will totally throw off your understanding of the New Testament. We as believers in Christ, as the church, Jews and Gentiles alike, are the true and new people of God. 
This is what Ephesians 3 is talking about. This is the climax of God's program. This is the mystery that was hidden, but now has been revealed. That in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike come together. We are the new people of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, Who is the true Jew? The one who has been circumcised in heart. Who's, who, is, who has now the Spirit of God dwelling in him. That's the true Jew. You, my friends, are true Jews. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Paul exhorts these Gentile Ephesians in chapter 4. He says, don't walk any longer as the Gentiles walk. Well, who are the Gentiles? Unbelievers. Don't walk like them. Don't live like them. You are the true Israel. You are the true Jews. You are the ones who are now the people of God. Jew and Gentile alike. Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 3 that we are... The true circumcision. We are the ones who are the true Jews. In chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, Jesus talks about those who call themselves Jews. I mean, there are ethnic Jews, but they are not. Who are the true Jews? Those who belong to the people of God. Those Jews and Gentiles. This is the new and true Israel. In Uh, In Psalm 88, Israel is a faithless vine. In the New Testament, we see Jesus is the true vine. And those who remain in Him are the ones who bear much fruit. We see all sorts of pictures being transferred over from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In fact, we read that the description of ancient Israel to be a kingdom and priest is now applied to those who are believers, Jews and Gentiles alike. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the very description of Israel in the Old Testament. But now that belongs to us, the royal and the priesthood, the kingly and the priestly. In Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 5, we read about how we have been made in Christ a kingdom and priests to our God. In chapter 5, it says, and they, believers, or this kingdom of priests, they will reign upon the earth. The new heavens and the new earth, we will inherit that in transformed physical bodies, never to perish again. That is what we have to look forward to in the new creation. So Jesus is the one who fulfills the Old Testament story as the true and faithful Israelite that ancient Israel was not. And in him, we see that he is both the one who is the leader of the new Exodus, bringing about a new covenant And he is also the second Adam, creating a new humanity. If you understand those two things, many scripture passages in the New Testament will unfold before you. You will see it very clearly. But you will not see it if you think that God has two peoples, ethnic Jews and the church. So this is something that is going to be important for our understanding of the scriptures. And we see that Jesus sees himself in continuity with That Old Testament scripture. He sees himself as the agent of that God of the Old Testament. Now bringing about a new creation and a new humanity as a result. And of course, a new community of God's people. Well, what's the takeaway for us in all of this? As we look at the Old Testament scriptures and we look at Jesus as the one who is the fulfillment of that. As we see that there is this continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. The first thing that I want to say in conclusion is that 
the God of the Scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus, is not a God who is safe. I think a lot of, a lot of us think that we can kind of man, do, do, engage in a lot of sin management, that we can kind of keep our sin under control rather than being fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Dabble in this, dabble in this, just as long as it doesn't really cause our lives to tank, then it's okay. Basic sin management here. No, when Jesus comes, He calls us to take up our crosses, to follow Him. In the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you may remember the, uh, when Lucy, uh, one of these children who has gone into this remarkable land of Narnia after going through the, the wardrobe, uh, is, you know, ends up meeting Mr. Beaver. And she hears about Aslan, this Jesus figure. And Lucy is wondering about this lion, Aslan, and she says, well, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver tells her, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good, I tell you. He's the king. As we read the scriptures, we're not talking about a safe God who can be easily domesticated, can be easily tamed. No, he calls us daily to abandon ourselves, to take up our crosses, to count the cost of discipleship. Jesus is one who is very strong about the cost of of discipleship. And let us not think that we can just become flabby Christians. Yeah, I just walked down an aisle. I raised my hand. I became a Christian 10 years ago. And think that there is no cost to be paid. Jesus, yes, He paid it all on the cross. But we, in following Jesus, have our own crosses to bear. What sacrifices do we make as followers of Jesus Christ? Let Jesus challenge us in that. We read that Jesus, secondly, is the image of God and the second Adam. Jesus came to restore humanity. He came to make us what we could not be in our own selves. Jesus comes as the true human being. And so to become more like Jesus is to become more human. And so often we follow various imitations in our culture of how to shape our identity, of, of, of people to follow. No, Jesus is the one whom we should imitate. That we are called to put off those things in the old Adam, in the old man, that are destructive. Envy, dissensions, jealousy, and so forth. But we are to put on the things that pertain to Christ, the things that characterize Christ. Love, humility, compassion. To be forgiving of one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. We are called to become more human as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. So if you want to find your identity, want to become who you were meant to be, it is not by following cheap imitations in our culture. It is by looking to Jesus, the one who came to rescue us, to shape a new humanity that will bear the fruits that he has called us to, that the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians chapter 5. That kind of fruitful living of a transformed character. All of us seek for security and significance. Those are two 
key identity points, seeking security and significance. Well, where do we find security? Well, we find security in relationship. We find security in relationship and being accepted by someone else. And what greater security could there be than to be accepted by the God of the universe who has accepted us in Jesus Christ? You see, we don't have to say, God, accept me based on my performance. No, God's already done that. We can't perform anything. God is the one who has saved us in Jesus Christ. So we no longer have to strive to be accepted before God. But what Paul said is we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. So we need to distinguish between being accepted before God, which is only on the basis of what Christ has done. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But what we can do is, by God's grace, seek to live lives that are pleasing in his sight, as 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us. Well, where do we find significance? We find security in relationship and ultimately in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But we also find significance through purpose. We don't want to live lives that are meaningless, lives that are trivial. We want our lives to count. We want to do something. We want to be something. Well, what greater significance, what greater purpose could there be than to actually live out a God-given purpose for our own lives? But there are works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10 tells us. Let our identity be shaped by the true human, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who calls us to be truly human, that is, to be Christ-like. Another brief point here is that God not only is creating a new humanity, but He is also creating a new covenant community of Jew and Gentile alike. So wonderful to meet these uh, uh, some Korean students here who are at Indiana University and just chatting with them. And what a, what a glorious thing it is to participate in the body of Christ, to meet people from all around the world and to have the same family connection through Jesus Christ. We are called to live in community. Now, there are some Christian leaders who have abandoned the church, saying you don't need church. People like Donald Miller, blue like jazz. A lot of people loved it. But he said, I don't need the church. Church is disappointing. Church has let me down. Well, in a sense, that's the point. God calls us to commit ourselves to people who will inevitably let us down. You will let people down. I will let people down. But that's what we're called to. Accept one another in Christ. To be forgiving of one another in Christ. Don't forsake being together, being part of a community, learning to live, you know, letting, one another, letting each other you know, rub the rough edges off of us. The church is vital. Where the, where the kingdom of God is, there is the church. God's kingdom is always connected to people. It is not lone individuals. He has made us a kingdom and priest to our God. God is the ruler. God is the king. And God connects himself to people in this world who are his kingdom people. You can't do kingdom stuff without the body of Christ. The local church is vital and we see that in the New Testament. Finally, 
another application is this. That Christ in His death on the cross is taking on the curse, not only of ancient Israel. Remember it said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But Jesus is not only, as the new covenant leader of the new Israel, is not only concerned about ancient Israel and redemption through Him, but He is also concerned about all humanity. And so Jesus in the cross takes on our exile. He takes on our curse. He takes on our shame. God is willing to go to the very depths, dying naked on a cross for our sakes. You see, this is how low God is willing to go for our salvation. That God is willing to get His feet dirty, His hands bloody, to rescue us. That is how much God loves us. That is how great His love for us is. Not that we are anything. Some people might say, well, you know, if, 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 God, if Jesus were to die for just you, he would do it. Well, if that's true, that doesn't say anything about how great we are. But it simply speaks to the greatness of the love of God in Jesus Christ on our behalf. So let us look to that crucified Savior. The one who, through his death and resurrection, give to us life, life and hope and identity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reminder of the work of Jesus Christ and how he brings all of these things together as we look at the Old Testament and the New, as we look at Israel's story, and then we look at the new Israel in him. We pray that we will be more faithful followers of Jesus Christ as we dedicate ourselves to that one who is that faithful Israelite, uh, the one who took upon himself our shame, our exile, so that we might be part of a new creation, that, when, that we might be part of that new covenant community the true Israel. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.